0: This is a podcast from 3RR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.
1: Hello, you are listening to Triple R and welcome to another episode of Plato's Cave, a film criticism show and podcast. I'm Stuart Richards and with me tonight are my regular co-hosts Emma Westwood and Sally Christie. Hello, hello. Hello. Hello, Stewie. Hi. And tonight we also are joined by Thomas Caldwell. How are you?
0: I'm really well. It's lovely to be back. Thank you for having me again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh <laughs> <Dang it. laughs> stop it This so, is a really good show for me to come back on I don't want to spoil yeah. anything But there, there, there's something I'm insanely excited about tonight
1: <laughs> Well tonight is a very space themed episode We have a very small film uh, by Stanley Kubrick uh, uh, Called 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, And we are also looking at Isabelle Quachet's The Book Shop, also space-themed. <laughs> space-themed Bookshop
2: Also space themed Space themed Spacey, well, things. Spacey.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there is a character in that film who discovers the work of Ray Bradbury. So there you yes, go.
2: There is a link. I love that link. That's good, Thomas. <laughs> there was That's very also, good. There's also the Lolita Kubrick
3: link there too. Oh, there is too oh, yeah, in the bookshop. Yeah. Oh my yes. god! <laughs> wow. Yeah.
0: Um, Mind blown. <laughs> So we've joined the dots or the stars. Yeah, there we
1: go. First, we're on uh, on board the ship that made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs (laughs) with Solo, a Star Wars story directed by Ron Howard. The film is a space western uh, that provides a backstory to iconic Star Wars character Han Solo that explores events that precede A New Hope. We learn how he met Chewbacca and Lando Carlson Carlician, all while involved in a heist within the criminal underworld. Alden Ehrenreich plays solo and Donald Glover is Lando. Joining them in the all-star cast are Emilia Clarke, Woody Harrelson, Tandy Newton, Paul Bettany, Junus Sutuama and my absolute favourite, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, <laughs> uh, who I didn't know was in the film and no. she popped up and I squealed. Um <laughs> So while the film has been met with positive critical acclaim, it has been um, a slight letdown at the box office um, with an estimated three-day de- Three-day debut of eighty-three point three million dollars uh, at the U.S. box office, and internationally, the film has made sixty-five million dollars, which includes only ten million in China and the UK each. So, Emma, your thoughts? Mm, do you know what the budget is
2: or yeah, was? Three hundred. Okay, so they've got yeah. a little bit of ground to make up there, but anyway, uh, yes, Solo. I find we don't often speak about the Star Wars films or the Star Wars universe on this show. I think we've very rarely spoken we about it. We did the
0: Force Awakens. No,
2: we didn't actually. This no. might be this might be the
0: first Star Wars film from the new the new franchise. The new franchise. Yeah. yeah, it's
2: not one of the core films. It's a Star Wars um, story.
0: But we we haven't done any on Plato's Cave. I think this is the first uh, yeah, one. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's what. And, and I, I, I think that that's mainly because of the time of the year, because of it being December the releases, the end of the year, and we've sort of finished up by then, really. Basically. But also Star Wars kind of works in its own galaxy. (laughs) I I find that uh, talking about Star Wars films is like talking about um, a different world of cinema that operates as its own um, universe. (laughs) I'm using all these sort of space terms. But seriously, that's the way it does work. Um, with, With this one... There's, there's, it becomes, it's quite loaded. Like it comes with a lot of um, baggage and a lot of um, storylines story that have already come before it. I mean, it's only getting heavier and heavier and it's loading. This one I think is in terms of the, the actual lineage of the storyline, it sort of sits right at the start, doesn't it, with The Phantom Menace? The story, story number yes, one. This is Around probably the earliest story. <SSSSSSS
0: supported us. SSSSES> it's a bit we've seen. earliest, yeah. <SSS> yes.
2: Which was really interesting because it kind of had this, especially at the start, it had almost um, trench warfare, and it, it, it sort of played out this idea of um, vintage film, even though we're playing vintage retro film, which I thought was quite nice the way it played that out.
0: Well, the original Star Wars is so deep in World War II kind of iconography, especially with, you know, in that original film especially, it's really evoking Nazism and and things like the Dam Busters. So, yeah, th- this was interesting yeah. how this evoked the trench warfare of the First World War and even a bit of Civil War type uh, action, I think, was implied in yes. the design of this new film.
2: Absolutely. And it had that sepia tone. It really worked on that tonal level as well. And it kind of played on this idea of retro culture. I mean, even the hairstyles. Like, Thandie Newton was wearing this sort of fro, this which was not obviously trench warfare, but it was still retro for us, like on, on not the same retro lineage as World War One, but, yeah, still retro. And... The only thing that I found with this, I, I look, I I enjoyed it. It's 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 a ride. It's it's good fun. I wasn't entirely sold with um Alden Iron Aaron Reich. Yeah, Ehrenreich. I found him. I, I like him as an actor. I didn't feel that he was Han Solo to me. I didn't. They didn't play up enough for me that that where that cynicism comes from that you get from Han Solo. Uh, also, there were two seminal moments that they felt like they glossed over um, with the idea of, um, the, first of all, meeting Chewbacca, which was just too fast for me. There wasn't enough rapport building there. Um, it was The whole film was perfectly paced, like beautiful beats hit um you know perf- perfect rhythm of beats that needed longer that needed more beats and also the introduction of the millennium falcon and and i think that that would have paid more homage to for the fans too because these are important moments in this storyline
0: it it's curious how... So this is the fourth of the new films, and so there's two which are kind of throwback, filling in the gaps, and then there are, then there are these two new ones which are continuing the story. And all four of these films in some way are still so very much laboured by the original mythology. I mean, the, the uh, Force Awakens and The Last Jedi have been accused very much of rehashing the original films, um, although, ironically, the other one, what is a, The Last Jedi was also criticised for trying to do something different, which I thought was the best thing about that film, all the differences. My problem with the film was more that it sort of went on forever and it started to feel very franchisey. But I, I really enjoyed Rogue One and now Solo for how incredibly kind of basic and old-fashioned they are. And, you know whenever you speak to somebody who's never watched the original Star Wars films, who now watches it as an adult, they're often quite underwhelmed because the storyline is quite simplistic and I think we tend to romanticise that original trilogy. I freaking love those original films. I mean, they're a huge (laughs) part of my childhood, but I think we hold them up to a ridiculous high standard and I thought this film was sort of perfectly fine in an extraordinarily entertaining way. And, I look, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the old-fashioned good times with this. I, I admired the last film for trying to do something new, but I liked the return to basics vibe with this. I liked the kind of, yeah, retro World War I type vibe to it, the kind of traditional heist film feel. I do see what you're saying about the lead actor and in fact often he was channeling Jack Nicholson more than Harrison Ford for me <laughs> yes. but I which I, again I kind of like the fact though he wasn't trying to do Harrison Ford he was just trying to bring about a bit of swagger and charm to capture the spirit of that character before he becomes too cynical and and, and bitter and look I thought it was perfectly fine I mean this is a really really perfectly fine film for me mm. um,
2: <laughs> Perfectly fine
0: from it, it, in a, yeah. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it I, came out, this is the one I've enjoyed the most of all the new films. I really had a good time with this film and um, I I think critical reaction seems to have been quite mixed. I think partly because people do over-romanticise original films Mm. and partly because fans are so irritating and don't know what they want. They want it to be the same (laughs) but different and if you do it different and the same, they get angry.
3: (laughs) I um, had a really fun time watching this film. I really enjoyed the entire ride of it. By no means am I a huge Star Wars fan. And I think that that really works to my advantage in something like this. I know quite a few people that are pretty hardcore Star Wars fans that have had a really bad reaction to this. But for me, it was fun. I I don't know a whole heap about the Star Wars universe, but I know enough about kind of Han and Chewie and it was really nice for me to see their beginnings. I do agree what you said, Emma, that that should have been focused on more with Han and Chewie. And... um. I do think that he did a really good job of playing Han. Me too, actually. I do. Like, I think he did Mm. a great job. Mm. From, like I said, my knowledge of the Star Wars Mm. universe is limited, (laughs) so I'm not going to be saying that.
1: Mm. I like the idea of a character arc, though, because in New Hope he's really cocky and cynical. And then in this film he's very naive and kind of baby-faced. How old was he meant to be?
3: Sorry for cutting off there. Don't know. Because they kept calling him a kid. Yeah, they did.
2: Oh... Uh, like teens, oh, early man. 20s, would you say?
0: Yeah, I think it's the idea. We, we yeah. Mandy yeah. Messi's an older teenager, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so
1: I like that character arc. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I was a little bit let down with uh, Donald, uh, Donald Glover as Lando Calisian. He was the one that, for me, I was expecting because there were so many GIFs and memes and photos being spread around on Twitter about him playing Lando and, for me, I was let down by him.
0: What you wanted more, or just, just wanted you want him more to be better? His character, sure. I just, yeah, I, just,
1: yep. I thought he was really underdone.
2: I thought it would he, he. actually portrayed one of the sweeter, um, you know, android romances of the the franchise.
1: <laughs> Phoebe Waller Bridge as L three. <laughs> Best android in the franchise, I think. She
0: was great. <laughs> but it, it's curious, Sally, what you said about that, that kind of fan baggage that he's brought to these properties, yeah. which which is mm. c- can be really terrible. And I, I am firmly now these days on the belief that fans should never get a say in their own properties because yeah, they, they always get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Never let a fan direct or write anything yep. because... Yeah, sure. And they're the worst people at knowing how to add to a franchise they love. And mm-hmm. I use myself in this. I, you know, I, I include myself in in, in this... Um, you know, I, I've got pop cultural obsessions which I hope I'll never want to write for because it'll just be all continuity <laughs> wank and, uh, You
2: will never make uh, Twin Peaks yeah, season I, three. I don't want to make no. Twin Peaks, I don't want to make
0: Doctor Who, I'll screw both of <laughs> them I'll do some kind of horrible kind of hybrid mash up of Doctor <laughs> Me and Dale Cooper because that sounds amazing in yeah. my mind. But It, it sounds
2: amazing in my mind. But it, <laughs> so it, it, it is terrible.
0: It. And yeah the, the curious thing about Star Wars is I was so invested as a kid, I loved it and I was um, the idea that I might be an adult now and watching these films sort of blown my young mind. But I think I lost that love when those those George Lucas prequels came out in mm-hmm. the 90s and I stopped mm-hmm. kind of being that interested. But I, I still have a lot of fondness for this series. So I think I really enjoyed this film because I'm not an obsessed fan. Yeah. And I think the kind of pandering to fans that often happen in film, these films... I think that stuff is done quite well in this because I didn't really notice a lot of it. It wasn't until afterwards I read about all the references they make and I Mm. thought, well, that kind of flew by without me being aware that I was missing Mm. the joke. Like, Mm. the the Marvel films, for example, I often spend half of those films not understanding what on earth they're talking about, even though I've seen the films. Yeah. Or or it's just kind of cringy and indulgent, which Doctor Who at its worst can get when it's overly referencing itself, where this one, I thought, kind of stood alone perfectly fine. But if you're invested in the franchise, there's a lot of lovely little Easter eggs in there for you.
2: I'm not sure whether anyone knows because um, the story behind this, but I know this production was fraught with difficulty and then the the directors were actually... um, Replaced. Replaced by a very experienced director, um, Ron Howard, obviously, uh, who has had nothing to do with the Star Wars universe in, in the past from what I know. Um, it does have the lineage of, um, the ca- well, Lawrence Kasdan, writing with his son.
0: Yeah, who wrote things like Empire Strikes Back. And, exactly. Yeah.
2: So it has a really strong Star Wars lineage. Mm. But I'm not sure what the – does anyone know what the creative differences were
1: Apparently there were a lot of uh, improvisations okay. on set, apparently.
0: So the original directors were the two guys who did the 21 Jump Street films and uh, the Lego Batman movie. So really... Oh, okay. Sorry, oh. not the Lego Batman movie, the, the Lego movie, the mm. first one. So really kind of pop culture, kind of hyperactive, very clever guys. Mm. But, you know, when I heard, yeah, they... They were trying to loosen it up and impro lots of stuff, and when I heard they had left, I felt bad for them. Mm. But I must admit, like, I was one of the people who sort of felt something of relief when I heard that kind of that workhorse Ron Howard came on board to just do the solid film that he did. I, yeah. you know, It's silly to speculate about a film that was never made what it could have been, but I, I don't think that changing of directors was a bad thing at all.
1: Mm. And with a franchise like Star Wars, similar to Marvel, where... I mean, a director can only have so many creative choices when there is so much baggage that they've got to work with, I think.
0: These are producer-controlled films yes. for sure, yeah, yeah. There's only so much. I mean, that's why Taika Waititi's work on Thor, Ragn- Ragnarok was actually quite remarkable mm. because that was the first of those Marvel mm. films that you felt a, 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 the flair of that director.
1: Yeah. Uh, I love the, all the Western uh, sort of moments. I did too. I really mm. enjoyed that. That was fantastic. fantastic. Yep. I did you as well. So, the, the sort of the poker match in the saloon, and then there's the shot <laughs> from sort of between his legs as he steps up to yeah. the table.
2: <laughs> there was. Um,
0: the train robbery. Yeah. The train, yeah. The, the train
2: <laughs> was the, the train sequence. It was still too cutty, 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 cutty for me. I wanted that train because that train looks so freaking good. You know, <laughs> that double rail train going through. Mm. I would have liked to have seen. Been able to indulge in that sequence a little bit more, you know. Um, it's just, uh, it's just the, the the kind of the folly of today's action sequences where we're we're sort of cut, 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 and we don't get to actually see the action. At slot. least
3: there were no slow motion fight scenes.
2: I, I'm I, so sick of this. <laughs> no, that's a good point, Sally. Really I, good
0: point. I found <laughs> this one fairly coherent. The action more so than mm. say something like Black. Panther, which I ultimately didn't sort of love as much as other people because I found no. it a bit of a, a, a blur and a bit disorientating. I found this one the more coherent, mm. coherent ones. Yeah.
1: I would have liked more about the mara- to know more about the Marauders because as the narrative develops, mm. they do play such a key role and when they appear in that train robbery sequence... I, I mean, I'm a bit like you, Sally, where I've watched all the Star Wars films, but because I can't pick up on everything, I always feel that I'm an outsider. No matter how much I read and watch of Star Wars, I always feel like an outsider. And so for these marauders, when they came in, I didn't really know who they were. And I was like, oh, this must be a Star Wars thing that I don't know about. Um, and so I would have liked to know more, even like a few lines of dialogue to just really establish their significance because they become really important by the That's end. That's a good point.
0: That's a good point. And, in fact, if there was a big fault with the film, I think it would be the way they work them into the end of the story. It doesn't Mm. ring true with how we see them at the start. hmm. And I don't think it quite handles our changing feelings towards those characters. Like, we very much perceive them in one way at the start and it's different towards the end. And I I don't Mm. think that was handled all, all that well.
1: Yeah, that was quite manic.
0: Yeah. That section.
1: Mm. There was one more point I wanted to raise was, uh, so Clem Bastow has written a great article for the Sydney Morning Herald about sort of the queer baiting or the queer undertones of the film. Which I completely didn't see. Which I really love about it because (laughs) some, I mean, when I watched it, I was like, this is, I mean, this is queer baiting. I've right got to read this. Face. I've
2: got to read. Yeah. So,
1: it's t- so in your hit face. me with some
2: queer bait. I want well, to know
1: it. I want to uh, know it. Back to my, the love of my life, Phoebe Waller Bridge as L3 <laughs> in the cockpit. Uh, she's sitting there in the, the co pilot seat. And then we have Lando in the sort of the, the pilot seat. And then Solo is at the back. And they're kind of bickering. And then L3 has this line where she's like, just stop flirting and do your job or something. <laughs> And at the, obviously at the end, there's a moment at the end where they just constantly look at each other. And for me, I was like, this is so sort of front and centre, this queer baby. Is it as which... queer as Lord of the Rings? Really? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Has they, the hasn't
3: coolest. they come out and said that he's meant to be pansexual? Yeah. Isn't that like a known thing?
1: Yeah, so now they've, they've said that Lando is pansexual, <laughs> uh, which I'm okay with because it's there,
0: there are nods. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Did you say it, Thomas?
0: Um, I always felt there was a bit of a thing. From Lando and Hando. I mean I, I think that it was wasn't
2: that T. Lando. Lando and Hando. Lando and Hando.
0: Well that's what they do in the privacy of their own homes um,
1: good for them I always
0: I always got that vibe from Han and Lando from Empire Strikes Back though I always thought there was yeah. the subtlest of kind of hints or teasers that those two were, were, were very close and you know they have a, a complicated relationship yeah. like falling outs and I falling mean, ins and handos. when there's
1: these kind of paratextual comments about, oh this character is actually pretty queer I'm okay with that with Lando and Han because if you look at the film you can see some nods there, but when J.K. Rowling comes out and says Dumbledore's gay, there's nothing in the the films (laughs) or the book that actually kind of supports that subtext. So I'm okay with uh, sort of this not being explicit but still there because Mm -hmm. a film like this still has to be sold in China and Russia um, for the box office, so they can't have really an explicit queer character. I mean, I'd love them to. I would love Han and Lando to...
0: Pash at have, the a end. Hand-o- mm. yeah, have a <laughs> hando. <laughs> well, they, they've done it in the Star Trek franchise. They, they, yeah, well, And then they, they kind of seamlessly integrated that, not as, you know, as, as just a, an aspect of one of the characters really nicely with the, mm. with the Sulu character. That was handled really well. Mm. Um,. Yeah, I mean, contemporary cinema is really coming to grips with the fact that people are very being very vocal about there's been an enormous lack of diversity for mm. decades, well, a century, let's face it. Yeah. Um, and and it, it, it's wonderful seeing how some films are integrating this diversity without even blinking. Mm. Um, and we're just going to keep seeing more and more of it, actually. And the more people whinge about it being difficult, the more ridiculous they look, because mm-hmm. we're seeing it work really well, left, right and centre.
1: And there's all of the... Um the role of L3 sort of fighting for civil rights of robots. Yeah. Which that. is great. I did. I
2: really enjoyed <laughs> that.
1: Because Landa says, What do you want? And she's like, Equal rights.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of lack of diversity, what's the next film we're talking about? 2001 A Space <laughs> Odyssey. Well, <laughs>
1: <laughs> disgust, Thomas. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry. That's a point we can pick up on when we come back from the break. <laughs> You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. From one space odyssey to another now with Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. The screenplay was written by Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke and was adapted from Clarke's short story The Sentinel. After the discovery of a mysterious object buried beneath the lunar surface, Dr David Bowman, Keir Dullea, and his crew set off to Jupiter along with the sentient Hal 9000. Themes explored in the film include artificial intelligence, existentialism, human evolution, amongst many, many other topics. Kubrick's film has given us several iconic moments in film history from the giant monoliths surrounded by prehistoric apes to HAL 9000's red eye, the colourful journey across the universe, or the floating fetus in a glowing placental orb staring at Earth from the uh, for the anniversary uh, for the 50th anniversary a fresh print was struck from new printing elements made from the original camera negative in that in what is being called a true photochemical film recreation no digital alterations, remastered effects, or revisionist edits. The aim is to present the cinematic event audiences experienced 50 years ago. So-
2: Amen, I
1: say. <laughs> so, Thomas. <laughs> Sounds
2: pretty bloody good.
0: I'm very excited.
1: Uh, Thomas, what was mm. it like revisiting this film?
0: Well, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll start off by confessing to you I, I didn't go to revisit this film for this segment because I don't think any other film exists that I've seen as many times as I've seen this wow. film. Well, man, the Blues Brothers would come close. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I adore that for different reasons. Um, no, look, 2001 A Space Odyssey is just so integral into why I love cinema. Like, it was one of the first films I saw as a child where I had this kind of awareness that film is more than just entertainment. It's the first film that I got to take seriously at school as a as a work that was worth writing about and exploring. And I've been obsessed with it ever since. It's my favourite film of all time. I mean, and, and possibly it's the best film of all time as well. I don't want to make that value statement just because it's my personal favourite. Best film of all time. It's my best, film of, best, it's, it's film, my best big, film of all time. That's
2: big. That's big.
0: And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've often chosen friends or, or dumped people because of their response to this <laughs> if, I dis-, if, if I disapprove. <laughs> you know, it's when people say to me... It's a bit slow, isn't it? Like sh- <laughs> we we can't talk to each other anymore. No, look, I, the, the note to self. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, you're all on. That.
2: Who disliked it? I don't waiting, know how I'm, I'm going to get
0: through this without being too yeah yeah hyperbolic hyperbolic. Um, <laughs> this is a really a really profound film, both in its its, its visual. Boldness and, and you know, sort of revolutionised a lot of special effects. Visually, a lot of it still holds up today. I mean, apart from the fact that, that they didn't predict um, that computer chips would be a lot smaller than they're represented <laughs> in the film, it's pretty much on, you know, it, it gets all the, the science details pretty pretty right. But, but thematically, it's also quite profound. And it explores a lot of Kubrick's obsessions throughout his entire um, film career. Kubrick was into... The way humanity interacted with technology, our relationship to violence and sexuality and, and social structures. And that's, that's all in this film. And a really big theme of Kubrick's films is that humans often behave according to the whims of external powerful forces pulling our strings. So whether it's the the, the soldiers in these many war films um, who are under the dictates of quite dehumanising commanders or whether it's the supernatural forces in The Shining, which I think are just there as a parable for domestic violence, or it's the the literally deprogramming people in The Clockwork Orange or sexual obsession in Eyes Wide Shut and Lolita this 2001 is weely probably his most hopeful film because there's the, there's the idea in this that humanity can evolve into something more but we're still being controlled by forces beyond our um our own control you know this is literally a film about aliens kickstarting our evolution and then the next phase of our of our e- evolution once we are up to a speed that they think is 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 suitable Suitable for us, um, and yeah, the, 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 the kind of complex look at our relationship with with technology. I mean, the first sequence begins with humanity discovering how to use a tool, and then straight away uses it for a, a, a weapon to kill. Then we get an amazing graphic um, match cut to to the future, where where technology is celebrated in this ballet of spacecraft. The
2: biggest, the biggest jump cut in cinema, I think, has yeah. been called. Well, <laughs>
0: It's an extraordinary jump cut. I only <laughs> discovered not that long ago, actually, that Kubrick wasn't the first to do this. There's a Powell and Pressburger film, uh, Canterbury Tales, where they do something quite similar that Kubrick lifted. So actually he, oh. it is a magnificent cut, but Kubrick kind of borrowed it from oh, from the arches. Um, and
1: Clark says that that's a space bomb. Uh, oh, does he? To, yeah. So Clark says it's a space bomb. So That's people not explicit in the yeah. narrative, <laughs> <isn't> it? <laughs> we wouldn't
2: know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So people read into it where it's this just it's signifying the journey that man has made to just bigger things to destroy people with, basically.
0: But then you do get that celebration of the beauty of space and spacecrafts mm. with them with the, with these these spacecrafts moving to in a ballet, and it's kind of a little bit sexual too with the craft flying into the big wheel, which <laughs> Kubrick also did in <laughs> Doctor Strange Love. I um, mean, this is the bit that normally bores people, but I, I just find it so mesmerizing mm. and beautiful. And it, it is, it, yeah. Mm. Um, and then the very complicated relationship on board the discovery where you've got humans who are like robots, who are, the, the, I think they're described in the novel as caretakers, who are just sort of systematically running this ship. But you've got this computer becoming very self-aware and kind of having a breakdown because it, it, it's got contradictory uh, information being fed into it. So it kind of goes on this murderous rampage. And then, you know, this idea of machines having more humanity than, than humans is something we saw all throughout the 80s in Blade Runner and Terminator mm-hmm. 2 and Robocop. Um, I, I don't know. I'm just going to keep saying words about why I, love, why I love this film. Don't even get me started about the psychedelic ending where you know, he transcends into this new state of being. I think you called it the floating fetus. It's, yeah. it's, it's referred to in the novel as the star child. The star, the star-, the star- child. Star- <laughs> child. <laughs> <laughs> Sally?
3: I feel re- I feel really nervous talking about this film, <laughs> to be honest, um, because it's Kubrick and he's incredible and he's amazing and in all honesty, like Thomas, he started my love for film, but it was A Clockwork Orange, I think was the first film I saw of his, but... It made me see that film was something that was in-depth and something that was incredibly beautiful that could be studied. Um, I think my first exposure to 2001 would have been Through the Simpsons as a child, <laughs> Deep Space Homer episode.
2: That know. was a really good one uh, too. It's one of my favourite
0: <laughs> yeah. Simpsons
3: episodes. But this film, like, what can you say about it? It's incredible, it's important, it's still so cutting-edge. Um, my perhaps favourite thing ever about Kubrick is the production design in his films and it is outstanding in this so 2001 and A Clockwork Orange have my favourite ever production designs Oh, and The Shining is very good too but um, who was the production design in this one I think it was Ernest, Ernest Archer and Harry Lang they didn't do yeah they didn't do it in Clockwork Orange but yeah this, it's that very that symmetry that he uses all the time mm. it's just so incredibly beautiful and One thing that I love about this film that was happening a lot at this point in time was, if we look at Hitchcock and Psycho, they're really explaining things to the audience. They're playing, though, as though the audience is stupid. Kubrick's not doing that. He's leaving a lot open for the audience to interpret, so he's playing to the the audience's intelligence. Sorry which, yeah, didn't happen a lot at this period in cinema, I feel. So, yeah, it's a really special, important film that I'm
2: tongue-tied about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Emma. yeah, it's an incredibly courageous film. Um, and I think that, you know, it's important to contextualise it in in terms of what was going on at the time. You know, I just made a joke about the lack of diversity, but that's, you know, fine. That's just an observation. That's not a, a criticism of this film at all. Um, it's totally apt for this film. Um Also, that it was a big time in terms of the space race. Um, Space was on everyone's mind and what we could get to. It was also a competition between the US and Russia in terms of um, who could get there first and who could do what first, but in calling it 2001 A Space Odyssey, you can see what was expected, where we would we would be by 2001, which is quite, you we know, almost two decades ago now. Where we're nowhere close to that. But if we had kept on that trajectory what Kubrick was projecting and he had a lot of scientific um, consultancy on this film that was actually um, made sure that the film was fitting into actual science, Um and you can see that in the film this is this is what comes out this is why it's so incredibly gobsmacking and for me i find that i you know you can connect with people in films this is not about characterization or character development it's about humanity and humanity as an overall concept um, and the the evolution of humanity and the fact that over quite a long film that it can hold my attention. I've always found, and, and as as a young person, like I watch this very young,
3: mm. I, I find quite incredible. Yeah, yeah. I
2: find it quite. It, it surprises me mm. that he's been able to do it, and it doesn't feel snow at, slow at all. It's incredibly balletic. It also brings together the a concept of science and art within as a, a total universe because often they're seen as separate constructs but Kubrick works those two together beautifully.
3: I think we also need to acknowledge all the important the art that has come from this film in particular David Bowie's work that was inspired by this mm. movie but there is when you mentioned the connection between space and art heaps that we've got from this some really really beautiful pieces of art.
2: Yeah absolutely so, you know, these 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 moments, I mean, you look at this film and I think that um, everyone who sees it and goes to see these 60, 70 mil screenings of this film, which is so worthwhile seeing, you absolutely have to see it on the big screen and this beautiful new print, um, stay for the credits and watch the credits. The credits are gobsmacking to see how few people are involved in this production mm. and it's all photographic. So you're going to read a credit sequence that's unlike like anything you see today. You know, you get these credit crawls that just keep on going and it's digital composition upon digital composition. And this one is they just show sort of, you know, single frames of, um, you know, the special photography um, single credits, one after the other. Uh, mm. It's it's a different time of filmmaking. Well, yeah.
0: uh, big shout out to Douglas Trumbull who did the yeah. uh, the photographic Amazing. effects. A real mm. a, another revolutionary filmmaker. He, he also did the effects for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Blade Runner, and The Tree of Life. And these are all films I consider masterpieces. So I think Trumbull's got a lot to do with that. And it, it's that yeah, it's that that practical effect.
2: And the Universal Studios theme park. Would you believe he did that for oh, a number? Yeah, and that, that was in. Incredible! That blew my mind when I went there in the nineties. So when he was
1: doing it. So for me, when I watch this film, I think of another Simpsons episode.
3: (laughs) When it all comes back to the Simpsons, always comes back to the Simpsons.
0: You can see the generational gap here. (laughs) Post Simpsons and yeah, (laughs) pre Simpsons viewers.
1: Where they're in the futuristic house, and then there's the uh, the house is voiced by Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, Pierce Brosnan. (laughs) Hello, (laughs) Mark. Uh, for me, I, I mean, obviously my favourite, one of the key moments is the, that sort of colourful sort of burst across the universe. Um, and there's a really great article in The New Yorker that's recently been published by Dan Chowson, um, who says that the film evokes this concept of the beyond. Mm. Um, but he makes a comment towards the end of his piece where uh, he says it's really sad that so many people experience these iconic moments from 2001 through YouTube or through kind of memes or GIFs on Twitter where they're kind of extracted from the film as a whole. Because for me, when watching that kind of colourful sequence, I always go into a trance when I see this film. I mean, those balletic moments. I always go into this kind of lull, this kind of like drug-like haze. Mm, Uh, And when that kind of colourful moment happens, that's when it's like, holy shit. Um, And kind of experiencing that, Sort of, sort of extracted from the film itself, I think, is quite a sad thing.
0: Yeah, it's not the same without the build to that yeah. moment. Yeah, mm. Emma.
2: Yeah, it was um, interesting because the film, when it was first released, uh, actually <laughs> didn't do very well, and I think that the that MGM was going to pull it from cinemas until the word of mouth passed around the the drug communities and all of a sudden the, the cinemas started to fill up because, you know...
0: People would publish guides on the best point in the film to take some LSD. Yeah, so exactly. it kicks in during that sequence. It's psychedelic.
2: Yeah. There are so say? many people
3: that I've spoken to that have told me about their first experience watching <laughs> this film
2: and what drugs they were on. But it, it is a wonderful play on interdimensionality. dimensionality I was talking with my, um, my, my husband before coming on here and he said, oh, you mean multi universes and I'm like no it's actually interdimensionality it's something that was kind of then um, fleshed out in Interstellar like Christopher Nolan worked on Um, but this idea of literally um, different dimensions not different universes, different dimensions, the idea of space, time you know Mm. everything that we work on it's it's mind expanding.
1: (laughs) Interstellar is a a
0: good film for you to reference because that's one of many films that is very indebted to 2001 and in fact it relies on Mm. the audience's knowledge of 2001 to generate its own meaning to a degree um and I, i'm you know overall quite a big fan of christopher nolan but his big weakness is he overexplains things and interstellar falls down where 2001 does not mm-hmm. because it overexplains what's going on and it kills the magic where this one just goes you know less and less is explained as the film goes on especially during that final sequence yeah I mean, as glorious, just sitting there. What is happening?
1: <laughs> I rewatched this a few nights ago, and I was really tired, lying in bed, and I, I felt like I was high, just like <laughs> so lying there, like in my dunokona. You were.
2: <laughs> it was the, the, the synapses firing <laughs> yeah. from this amazing imagery that you were seeing. But but even the thing where you know
0: where, where the, the Bowman character is being aged to the point of death, so he can be then reborn as this next mm. step in humanity's evolution, and he's sees himself as an older person and then he's that person seeing himself as an even older person and there's something so beautiful and eerie about yeah. that. This is one of the great, beautiful, eerie films mm. and a lot of it is also the, the score. I mean, I think a score was composed for 2001 but Kubrick threw it out and then just got all existing classical music and he uses that incredibly um, discordant, confronting music by Ligeti, um, mm. um. especially throughout these, these final sequences R, not for everyone, for anyone. So
1: finally tonight, we are taking a look at Isabel Quaget's The Bookshop based on the novel by Pen- Pen- Penelope Fitzgerald. Uh, the film is a Spanish, British and German co-production. Set in 1959, Florence Green, played by Emily Mortimer, decides to open a bookshop in the small coastal town of Hardborough, Suffolk, in an in the old house, an old, abandoned, decaying property. Upon hearing this news, the wealthy and influential Mrs Gamart, played by Patricia Clarkson, tries to convince Florence that the space would be better used as a local Art Centre. Mr Brundish, however, played by Bill Nighy, uh, a lonely and peculiar inhabitant of the house at the top of the hill, is Florence's best client and tries to help her. So Sally, what did you think?
3: This was a nice movie, wasn't it? <laughs> it was very nice. Everything about it was very nice. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I feel with this film that they've gone and said, let's make the blandest movie ever made and they've come out with the bookshop. They've done very well at that, haven't they? <laughs> they have. I I did not like this movie at all. Nothing hit the mark for me. I felt that the script was really poor. I felt that Patricia Clarkson was really underused. She was hardly in it at all and mm. she is such a fantastic actress that, yeah, she should have been in it a lot more. One thing I kept thinking when I was watching this, I thought that this would make it really great, is if... um the main character was Bernard Black from Black Books and it was all about yes. kind of his struggle getting into Black Books. That got me through the film, was having this little fantasy in my head that it was Dylan Moran. <laughs> but, yeah, I just I felt that it was really bland in every aspect of it. There even... What was meant to be the confrontations of the film. It just, it was all like, oh, yes, yes, that's a nice, have a cup of tea, that kind of thing. It just, it
1: didn't work. So at all. much tea is drunk in this film. Oh girl. my God, it's so
0: British, isn't it? <laughs> I See, yeah. I, I normally quite enjoy delightful, nice British mm. films of this nature. I thought, I, I, I actually went to see the, the literary Guernsey potato peel, whatever that title was. <laughs> the long one. I willingly went to see that and really enjoyed it. My mum loved it as yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, your mum's all right. Um, <laughs> I liked it a lot. I love their finest from last year, I think. Which which actually was a, quite a sophisticated film, and I'm looking forward to the TV Dames films that's coming
2: out. <laughs> With all the dames. With all the
0: dames. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Biggest crossover in cinematic <laughs> history. I, <know. laughs>
0: I tend to be a bit of a, a sucker for this kind of thing, but, yeah, I found this a frustrating experience. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of scenes where I wasn't too sure why we were having this particular scene. We just and down to the minute details, like weird camera pans and tilts that made no sense. Um It's meant to be a nice film but the ending was just totally depressing Um, and I thought, why do we come on this trip if that's where we end up? Um, and then the other, the most, I mean, the, the one thing is, the, a lot of that is that thing where the cast often were in different films, like there was a lot of kind of big, borderline pantomime acting, and I, this is the worst I've ever seen Patricia Clarkson. I mm. normally adore her, but she's I'm pretty great. bad in this. The one thing I will say is I liked Emily Mortimer and I liked Bill Nighy, and the few scenes they get together, I thought were kind of a, a, a little bit special. There was one scene in particular where, where the chemistry I thought was directed, pitch perfectly, but it was sort of a, a high point in a film that otherwise didn't do a terrible lot for me.
3: My biggest frustration along with my many other ones with this film was Patricia, Patricia Clarkson's character wanting to turn this space into an art centre but she says the space had been vacant for a very long time. Why didn't she just take it up before? Yeah, it that was very it, well it, written. It, it was, was it? just the script for me had so <laughs> many really obvious huge loopholes in it and mm. that was yeah the biggest one I think. Emma?
2: Yeah, I found it to be really dramatically inert, <laughs> I would say. It wasn't very well written at all. Um even I it, it had the opportunity to create some interesting characters um, eccentric characters, shall we say, uh, but they weren't there. They actually weren't there and the characters didn't even seem to interplay with each other very well. I, I, I don't want to bring down a child actor, but I thought she was terrible, that little girl. <laughs> she was awful in it. She And she was the one that was meant to be, I don't think it was her fault. I think it was the way she was directed. Um, she kind of played more of a, a little actor Adult, but she didn't really have any rapport with Emily Mortimer's character. I didn't really understand why she was in that shop. And she was a through line because we. Am I spoiling it to say we say she's the narrator? (laughs)
0: Too late. Yeah, well, (laughs) it doesn't matter. The narration
2: was terrible. You you kind of get the idea, don't you? The narration was terrible. Um,
0: And excessive. Yeah. Especially in the first half hour, it felt like an audiobook.
2: Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, but then it sort of went away. (laughs) And then it came back again. It wasn't actually paced very well. I think it was it wasn't a very short film either it went for quite almost, almost 2 hours, two hours yeah. yeah and there was probably the last 20 minutes i think it actually had something of interest but that was a hell of a long time to get there there was opportunity though for
3: it to pick up and become something interesting when the introduction of the booklo leader came in i thought oh okay maybe something's going to become yeah. of this we're going to take this whole kind of censorship turn but It was five minutes of the film, and that was it. It just went back to
1: nowhere. Yeah, I know, which I thought, okay, good, this is going somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. There were so many moments where, like, authors and books get introduced, and I was like, all right, there can be sort of a a commentary on these books, or the themes of those books could be incorporated into the the narrative, but nothing. Dead. Mm. Dead as a doornail. (laughs) So so I. Pretty frock. I like that red dress. That was hideous. <laughs> Did you like that red dress? I like that red dress. It just looked—it looked velour. Oh, and it made me feel itchy. You're really rub- <laughs>
0: <laughs> also, thematically, I mean, weird things about—you've kind of got the people advocating for the bookshop against the people advocating for an art space. And I thought, what universe is it where the the book people and the art they're people are the fighting? Same, they're the same team. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly.
2: I mean,
0: if you're going to make a statement about evil capitalists, have her back something. Up than an art space, <laughs> and uh, and also the way the film kind of started using heritage laws as something villainous that could be used against <laughs> the, the good salt of the earth people. I thought, oh
1: really? Damn um, those heritage laws. <laughs>
2: I yeah. do. I did actually find a, a really nice. You know how I like links, Thomas. I found a gorgeous mm. link here. You realise that um the last film, but Emily Mortimer and Patricia Clarkson was, were in. I was I was, was here the was party? On. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was the last show
1: that Thomas was on. Oh, it
2: was too.
0: I just thought, am I am I responsible? It? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: it's all your fault.
1: <laughs> so I saw the trailer for this when I was watching uh, the the film uh, Crooked House, Agatha Christie's adaptation, which, by the way, is brilliant and so much better than uh, the uh, the murder on the Orient that? Express.
0: I don't know. Oh, really? That, that's yeah. been written off. I thought.
1: No, I loved it. Okay. It's a really good yep. adap- um, adaptation of the book. Really faithful. So incredibly camp. Um, But anyway, so this trailer was on and it was with my friend Liz and we both commented at the same time, surely there's something else going on in this film other than Emily Mortimer trying to open a bookshop. Surely there's a twist. Surely it will go somewhere. Nothing. So I was watching the film and I was like, there's going to be like censorship or maybe this relationship with the Bill Nye character. Something and nothing. I think
2: Bill Nye was trying in his role. I think he was desperately trying in his funny little restraint way because it was a a very restrained (laughs) role. He needed to be sort of, you know.
0: I did really like him in this. Yeah, yeah. He's an actor who is prone to overacting sometimes, but when he's Mm. good, he's magnificent. And he he was a real highlight of this film Mm. for me, Mm. yeah.
2: But the Patricia Clarkson, like you said, Sally, there was so much lost opportunity there with her. It was, uh, she was meant to be the villain, the villain who was, but she wasn't. Actually played as a villain. It was like the villain that was forgot about mm. for most of the film. James Doesn't Lance came sense.
3: through as more of the kind of villain, I yes. think. Yes, in the end. My yes, favourite note that I've got from this film was about him that says just says Maxwell Sheffield cross Eli Roth. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's so correct.
3: That is of yeah. That's movie. really good. Wow. Yeah. <laughs>
2: if I got one good thing from
3: that
1: film, it was yeah. that.
0: <laughs> it needed yeah, look, it needed more Wookiees and more monoliths. <laughs> yeah.
1: Maybe, I was watching it, I was like, all right, how are we going to connect it to the other two sci-fi films? Maybe they're all aliens pretending to be human and that's why none of them can interact properly. (laughs) Because the dialogue was so stunted.
3: (laughs) Maybe we just forget it. it ever happened.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, the bookshop is now playing in limited release uh, and with that review, run, don't walk. Uh, tonight we also reviewed Solo, a Star Wars story, which is in wide release, and 2001, a Space Odyssey, Space Odyssey which will have a limited run at the Sun and Astol Theatres. You've been listening to Emma Westwood, Sally Christie, Thomas Caldwell and myself, Stuart Richards. Thank you to Faith Everard, who edits the podcast version of this show, and to Carl Ch-